Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Good evening. The President of the United States is tired of so many black people coming to this country. Tired of immigrants from Haiti and Africa being allowed in. Quote, why are we having all these people from whole countries come here, the president said today at the White House. Uh, this meeting behind closed doors in which the president referred to countries like Haiti and countries in Africa uh, as a whole. Donald Trump has shown us his dark heart, has shown us his racism, but we cannot normalize the fact that Donald Trump has turned the Oval Office into a hole, into a morally bankrupt place where there are lies and division and racism that comes out every single day. I apologize for using this word here, but this is a, a quote from the president. Why are we having all these people from whole countries come here? I'm a proud holer. My family was called and mackerel eaters. We came from Italians and Irish who were regarded as people from whole countries. A century ago, we called people slant eyes, Chinese immigrants that we're now ashamed of speaking about in those terms because they came from a whole country and now they're a backbone of this country. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. It has been quite a quite a 24-hour period here in the news cycle. That was just, I, we, we could have probably done a whole show of just playing audio of people cursing on TV in reference to this statement that the president says he used different words, but that the uh, overall sense that he was criticizing the immigration deal as posed to him was true. And that he did call out some some countries uh, specifically. You've got others weighing in on this. What uh, uh, Senator Durbin was in that meeting. We'll talk a bit more about about him and about what's going on with this whole situation, uh, which is completely consuming the anti. I mean, the anti-Trump media. This is all they're talking about. I've never seen so much profanity in mainstream news. I've never seen so much uh, so many people who were racing to use a four-letter word as often as they possibly could. And here we are. Uh, you, you have journalists, so, uh, so-called journalists, I don't know, they're sometimes really pundits who are posing as journalists, who are just straight up saying the president is a racist. Here's one of them. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. And that was a sentiment echoed by many different shows, many different uh, anti-Trump media members. I, I think that this is a, a very, a very interesting point in the immigration discussion, because as I've been saying to you, uh, Trump know, Trump knows that he can't betray his base on this, and Trump knows that the movement of Trumpism essentially falls apart. If there's no wall, if there's no immigration enforcement, and if there's amnesty, it's all over. I mean, at that point, I don't know how anybody—sure, the economy is, is is doing pretty well for now, and people would point to that, and there's some other—but 
Yeah, it's pretty mainstream stuff, what you've seen so far from Trump in terms of Republican Republican policy preferences, tax cuts, deregulation. I want to be honest with you. I don't think now a president Rubio or Cruz or heaven forbid Kasich. I mean, I don't think any of them could have won. But had they won, yeah, they'd also push for for tax cuts. And and would be doing some of this as well. But what was different about Trump was the immigration issue. And here we are now in the midst of a discussion about it where they're just saying he's a racist, which is really a reflection of how the left takes this issue, how they describe this issue uh, and, and their primary debate point, if you will, all throughout, which is that opposition to immigration is inherently racist. That that's the only reason that people might be concerned about the vast numbers of illegal immigrants in particular, but also there's been a tremendous influx of legal immigrants over the last 40 or 50 years or so, including from countries with very disparate cultures from what we would call, uh, well, different cultures from ours and different even from Western civilization. And we would like to have an open and an honest discussion about what that means for the country. You know, one part of this, as many of you know, who listen to the show, I, I, I love history, and and I and every time I find myself uh, reading a history book, it's just kind of a reminder of how many other history books I want to read. Right, the more you learn about your, our history, the more you want to know, and the more you realize you have to set aside time to just begin to catch up on some of these issues. But one thing that is true is that a country that loses its sense of ideological cohesion is headed for very uh, dangerous times. And the history of a the history of a multi-confessional, multi-ideological, uh, multinational melting pot or mixing pot or whatever you want to call it uh, throughout the world has actually been generally pretty tough. It is not a formula for continued stability. Now, in the American context, people would point out, they would say, hey, we are a country that takes people from all over the world and they become great Americans. And that is true. But assimilation is a process and assimilation also requires a certain degree of buy-in from the people coming to the country in the first place. And if the first thing that immigrants are taught, for example, is break the law, there will be no consequences, and oh, by the way, America owes you something. America should be doing more for you, even though you came here and your first act on U.S. soil was to break the law. I don't think that makes for a future immigration policy, and I don't think that makes for a future of this country that's particularly bright. I think it's going to be full of all kinds of conflict and uh, the the dissolution of, of our polity, as they would say in a political science class, right? Our, our political union, our political entity. It is all just an idea, right? Countries are all a fiction. And what you are forced to deal with when you look at the issue of immigration as Democrats propose it right now, if you really get down to it, on what grounds can we tell anyone they can't come to this country? The Democrat Party has either intentionally or just slowly morphed over time 
into a party that refuses to privilege the interests of citizens and Americans over anybody else if that other person is a prospective Democrat voter. And that's what this all comes down to. It's just about votes and power for Democrats, what it does to the country, what it does to the debt, the economy, to our to the shared bonds of our history and our culture in this country. Democrats don't care. They simply do not care. And a lot of us look at what's going on in Europe where there are substantial problems that are very recent in the making with large immigrant populations who do not adopt the culture, do not adopt the legal system. They they reject it. They do not learn the language. Now, I'm not saying all of them, but enough that it is a destabilizing force within that society. Germany, Sweden, you can go through, there's a bunch of different countries you can look at, and this is a, a problem, but by the way, is only going to increase over time. And what is the answer the Democrats have for this? Who do the Democrats say can't come into the country? Uh, it's not clear to me that they believe there's anyone who shouldn't be able to come into this country. And keep in mind that only half the country pays income taxes. A lot of people are in the country already who are not economically contributing to the to the greater good. A lot of illegal immigrants are in the country accessing services that they are not supposed to and and in violation of law in some cases and others they're just exploiting the system, exploiting our our goodwill toward all people. We understand there's some circumstances, some things where you just, you know, if someone comes to the hospital, you got to treat them. And I agree with that, but we cannot be the world's ER and soup kitchen. There have to be limits on this, and we wonder why it is that this discussion immediately gets turned into screams of uh, of racism and, and, and all the rest. Well, we don't necessarily wonder why. We should just be prepared, because that's what's going to happen, and that's what is happening right now. I want to know what all of you think about this. I mean, this is a Friday, so I like to open up the lines uh, as much as I can. So what do you think about the president's comments? What what's your take on he says he used tough language and was talking about this subject. So this isn't fake news. It may be false or exaggerated in in some way. But he said, why are we bringing people in from countries that are in really rough shape? And why do the Democrats want that so very, very badly? And I want to know what you think about this. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, we're we're going to have a show where we just kind of roll with what we want to talk about here today. That's the way we're going to do it. So, oh, which also means that I know we're talking about something kind of serious right now, but Action Movie Quote Friday is also in effect. Hit it. Action. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Movie. This is Sparta! Quote. Say hello to my new friend! Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We will be right back. When it came to the issue of, quote, chain migration, I said to the president, do you realize how painful that term is to so many people? African-Americans believe that they migrated to America in chains. And when you speak about chain migration, it hurts them personally. And he said, oh, that's a good line. 
And then when I talk to him about the impact this has on family unification in a nation that values families with the flag as the most important symbols of our future, they scoffed at this notion. It was a heartbreaking moment. Senator Dick Durbin there d- doesn't know what chain migration is or where it comes from. Chain migration has nothing to do with African-Americans. It has, it's not the derivation of the term has nothing to do with uh, African-Americans who were brought to this country through slavery. Uh, chain migration has to do with individuals who form a human chain who are in this country to bring in the rest of their families. So Dick Durbin here doesn't care what the truth is, doesn't care what reality is. He's just seeing yet another opportunity to pile on and engage in the most uh, flimsy virtue signaling. Just doesn't care. He just doesn't doesn't factor into his thinking that chain migration is not what he seems to think it is. I don't know if he's that dumb or if he is just pretending because it gives him a good soundbite right now. I don't know, but it has nothing to do with with anything. Uh, he, he, I, I, he's just looking for an opportunity to slam the president. And that's all that he really cares about right now with all of this. It would be interesting if we could have a discussion actually about why don't we have a merit-based immigration system in this country? Canada does. Are all Canadians racist? Because they have a point system. They look, they look at a person, each individual, and they say, what are your skills? How much money do you have? What's your background? What would you bring to the country? And yes or no, we will let you in. That's it. If there is no process of yes or no, if it's just show up, especially when you've got you know a welfare state like we do in this country, we like to think of, oh, you know, Europe, they've got this crazy welfare state and everything. we got a big welfare state in America, too, everybody. We're $20 trillion in debt. We're supposed to believe that... Uh, in many cases, illiterate immigrants from third world countries are going to be a huge benefit to an increasingly information-based economy that already has significant wealth disparities. That's what we are, we're supposed to think? Because they're doing the jobs Americans won't do? The Americans who have been doing whatever jobs they're doing, stretching back now for a few decades, have racked up a $20 trillion tab that future generations are on the hook for. So where does that leave us now? Oh, if we bring a lot of unskilled labor that doesn't speak English, uh, never mind whether they buy into the rest of American law, American culture, they're going to save us. It's not, it's not how it's working out in Europe where they've had labor shortages, or at least they talk about labor shortages in places like Germany. It's, it's a problem. It has been a problem. Uh, so, look... Every citizen, or rather, every immigrant needs to be judged as an individual. I've met incredible immigrants from every country one can think of, right? I've met immigrants from places, and in fact, and I will, you know, for you could start to rattle them off in your in your head, right? Think about it. You know, you look at uh, Cuban Americans, the Cuban American community in this country, so patriotic. Some of my uh, close friends and mentors. In uh, in when I lived in D.C., Cuban American, and they fled an island that was turned into a prison camp, basically. And they're incredible Americans, right? But they came through the process legally. They bought into this country, and 
it's it should be on an individualized basis. What we've seen here is really an argument in favor of a merit-based immigration system, not one that is certainly what we have now, which is chain migration and the, the, the lottery. Let's not get too crazy. The lottery is 50,000 people a year. There's a lot of people, but in the grand scheme of things, we've got a million new folks each year who are permanent residents or get citizenship. A million a year. That's a lot of people each year. Uh, so looking at this process is all about doing what's best for the American people and doing about doing what's best uh, for future generations. And, you know, this country is not a it's not a guarantee that we'll continue to be the best, the freest and everything else. We, we do have to take care of our own house here a bit. Uh, but, yeah, Cuban-American immigrants, I remember I've spent some, I spent some time with with a friend of mine uh, years ago who was a. Uh, Cambodian immigrant. I mean, when you've when you've had to flee, uh, when you've had to flee the Khmer Rouge with your family, and then America gives you safe haven. Yeah, you you love America, and you certainly at the time that would have been a you know the Khmer Rouge running your country. That's a pretty crappy country, right? And let's get away from just countries that are poor and call them crappy. That that can seem a little bit like punching down. I understand that, but you know North Korea is a crappy country. I mean, it's also poor, but it's uh, an authoritarian police state. You know, there are, there are plenty of crappy... Look, you could make an argument that, you know, in some ways, you know, Russia's kind of a crappy country. I mean, not crappy in the same way that these other countries are. It's crappy in its own way, but it's got a basically a dictator. You don't really have a rule of law and a, and a free press, and, you know, there's different levels of crappy, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And there are plenty of Americans that'll try to tell you how terrible this place is, too, so... You know, talking about a country is not the same thing as talking about all the people from that country. You know, when I, for example, when I criticize some aspects of Islamic belief, which, you know, people get very tense about that and they get very angry and you're not a Muslim and what do you know? And uh, I'm not criticizing individual Muslims. I have many people in my life, including people I've served with overseas and, and have trusted with my personal safety who are Muslim. But I'm talking about the ideology, the ideological system. The same way that I wouldn't get offended if somebody said, well, you know, Roman Catholics, they really need to, they, they got problems with this and that, and it's misogynistic or whatever it is they want to say. They're talking about the ideology. They're not, at least I don't take it as they're attacking me as a person, right? A, a nation state is an entity unto itself. It is laws, customs, culture, and ideas. It's not every single person that's in that country. So maybe this is, a, I think this is a nuance that's getting lost in the conversation over the course of the last 24 hours or so. Uh, but, you know, here we are. Wow, what a what a moment for the media. I've never seen... Uh, this is, I think, it's fair to say. And by the way, we've got every line here lit, so we will get to calls right after the break. I promise you. I know you're... I want to hear you all weigh in and got a lot of thoughts on this. If you want to throw in an action movie quote, you can too, but we'll talk about immigration. But I think the media is more, more up in arms about this about the crap hole i'll keep saying crap hole instead of what was actually said but the crap hole comment uh than they were about the whole billy bush audio tape before the election i think this is i think this is the the peak of their of their outrage uh so that's that's that is saying something with this media it really is all right we're gonna get into your call so stay on hold or uh give me a ring we'll be right back holding the line.
line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Dr. King's faith and his love for humanity led him and so many other heroes to courageously stand up for civil rights of African Americans. Through his bravery and sacrifice, Dr. King opened the eyes and lifted the conscience of our nation. He stirred the hearts of our people to recognize the dignity written in every human soul. Today, we celebrate Dr. King for standing up for the self-evident truth Americans hold so dear that no matter what the color of our skin or the place of our birth, we are all created equal by God. That was President Trump earlier today, the same president that is being called a racist, vile, uh, a neo-Nazi, all this stuff by mainstream journalists with big platforms. So they ignore what he says when they don't when it doesn't help or fit the narrative. And then they just focus in on one thing, take it out of context and make it sound as bad as they possibly can. This isn't going to change. No one who supports Trump is going to say, you know what? I can't support him anymore because he mentioned some countries and said they were crappy. Because a lot of people are going to say, I don't think he's calling them crappy countries because of anyone's skin color. He's just saying it's a crappy country. There, there are plenty. There are plenty of of crappy countries around the world. This is just, this is just reality, right? Democrats prefer emotion over truth, emotion over reality. But there are bad countries uh, all over the place, right? Just, just the truth. But by the way, just one note before I know we've got every single line lit. So by the way, as I take calls, that means a spot open. So those of you, because we had a, just a, a rush of calls, I want to hear from as many of you as I can today on the show. So 844-900-2825 is the number. As we take calls, a slot open, so call in. You, you can kind of pace it as we go through, because we got six lines lit up right now with callers. Um, but ju- this is from Fox News Research. So this is very interesting. For 2015 and 2016, new U.S. citizenship, these are the numbers in terms of country of origin for new United States citizens in 2015 and 2016. Number one, Mexico, 209,000. Number two, India, 88,000. Number three, Philippines, 82,000. Number four, China, 67,000. Number five, Dominican Republic, 57,000. Number six, Cuba, 57,000. Number seven, Vietnam, 46,000. Number eight, Colombia, 35,000. Number nine, El Salvador, 34,000. Number 10, Jamaica, 33,000. We don't really want to get lectures about America's a racist country, Republicans are racist. We're the country that's bringing in hundreds of thousands, a million a year, as I told you. But of the top 10 countries, not a single majority white or majority Caucasian country for new U.S. citizens and, and immigrants. And we're getting lectures about racism? How does that work? We're being lectured about the racism of this country or the racism of the Republican Party or the president himself when it's not that we bring in some non-white immigrants. We bring in a vast majority of immigrants who are, in fact, non-white, which, by the way, if we're doing it based on skills, I'm all great. If we're doing it based on these are people who are going to contribute right away to the economy, I don't care what color anybody is. That's not how we do it, though. We do it based on who's your—do you have family here? 
if you are a a refugee from a you know from a country X and you have you know 12 relatives you get to sponsor them to all come with you and do then do they get to then sponsor their relatives to come with them too All right, every line's lit. Let's get into this. Uh, James in North Carolina, welcome to the Freedom Hut, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, thank you for taking my call, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for calling in. Good. Yeah, I just wanted to mention, you mentioned that you're a fan of history, as am I. And um, my wife is a newly sworn American citizen. Well, congratulations. And, you know, thank you so much. We're so happy. I just believe, you know, especially the time we had to wait for her to come to this country, um, some of our best immigrants i think that built this country from the start came from what we would call a crappy country you know at the time and i think that as long as people do it legally if they're going to contribute definitely bring them um you know i feel the same sentiment was thrown upon irish immigrants or the chinese coming to work on the railroad you know it was oh what are they going to bring to this country just cheap labor well their descendants are now some of our senators congressmen major businessmen and they were coming for a better life and i i just don't i'm not on board with the immigrant shaming that i feel sometimes is going on and i think that our country is made up of people that sometimes came with no skills but learned skills and assimilated um well james that, that, those are my feelings. i know i look I, I i appreciate all your sentiments and and i i think you make some very very good points i would just uh, add add a few thoughts to that uh, one is that the when you, for example, you mentioned uh, the Chinese. I think you mentioned building the railroads in that period of time, and the the Chinese Exclusion Act, and all of the different persecution against the Chinese in this country as they're building railroads. But when you're talking about a pre 20th century America, just automatically you're talking about a country where there was no welfare state, there was no federal income tax, and if you came, you had to make it on your own, right? There was no option to show up, do nothing, and have the state pay for all your stuff. I think that's an important distinction when we look back at the historical example. You know, there's a difference between pioneers and settlers, and, oh, I I, I say that I'm a, a persecuted minority in whatever country I come from, and now I'm in America, and I just expect a check and food stamps and whatever else. Those are different yeah. circumstances, right? I think we can agree that that's a difference. I'm not saying that negates any part of what you've said, but that's an important thing to keep in mind here. Uh, and then I think the objection that a lot of, I mean, I can't a lot, what does that even mean, right? But the objection that some people, people like me feel is that they are, meaning the immigration authorities right now or the Democrat Party and how they push for immigration, is that they want to privilege certain countries and that's what's happened, for example, with temporary protected status with El Salvador and Haiti and certain countries, irrespective of any one individual from that country, it's, it's treated as special because of the country. Right. So in the case of El Salvador, we say, oh, they had a really uh, they've had a lot of uh, violence or an earthquake or whatever the case may be. Uh, it changes. And so El Salvador goes to the front of the line because of that. Well, that's different than saying, well, hold on a second. Somebody from El Salvador who wants to apply to be an American and wants to really bring something to the table and go through the process legally should be, you know, should or should not be brought into the country, right? That's saying the entire country gets to go to the front of the line because it's in such a rough, sh rough shape. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that that's if you're somebody from Paraguay and just to pick a country at random, you're somebody from uh, Vietnam. You got to be like, hold on a second. Why? Do, so El Salvador now has an advantage over me, right? Because we're treating it like. We view this by nation state, not by individual, 
And I think that's also part of the objection here. So when yeah. when Trump is lashing out, he's saying, hold on a second. Why are why are we making special protections for uh, for Haiti, for El Salvador? And I know the answer is they've had natural disasters. And but there are a lot of places that have all kinds of we don't have a special program for Somalia. Somalia has been basically in a state of war for the last 30 years. Right. You know, yeah. why doesn't you know what I mean? So creating a special privilege for based on nationality for countries that are doing really badly also seems kind of counterintuitive and wrong. I think it should be based on individuals. And, James, I've been talking. Anything you want to add to it? I just wanted to give you those two thoughts. Oh, no. I just wanted to say thank you for that. And also, too, you know, I believe in a merit-based system. My wife had to wait her turn and, and had to take the time to learn English in her country, come to the United States. Now she's a productive citizen. And it boils our blood in the house when we see people from her same country or other Latin American countries show up and, like you said, become a charge on the system. So I totally agree with with what you're saying. All right, James, thank you so much for the call. Good to have you with us. Um, let's get to uh, Tammy in Stewart, Virginia. Tammy, good to have you. Hey, Buck. Hey. Uh, thank, thank you for letting me talk to you tonight. Thank you for calling in. Ms. Storman. Um, I know when we vote for Trump, Trump has a special way of putting things. And that doesn't bother me. And sometimes strong words need to come out or words that we might not find appropriate to get attention. And this is a big deal in our country. Um, I know we are a great country. I know we have a lot. But as I get older, I also realize that, you know, as far as medical and housing and things, um, you know, it's harder and harder, and you begin to see that as you get older and wiser. And I feel the frustration with what Trump said because I look at all the funding and all the things that our country does for other countries, and yet you still have to watch the poor people that live there, and they still have nothing, and, you know— we give and give and do for others, which is good, but it does become frustrating because where is the money going? And these poor people that were accusing Trump of saying that they're the they're crap, that to me is not what he's saying because people that don't have anything from the country that he stated, how are they going to get here anyway? And you know, we, we help. Yeah, well, there are countries that are too impoverished. I mean, that are, you know, the, the truth is that what ends up happening, Tammy, is that for a lot of folks, proximity to the United States is a tremendous advantage who want to immigrate here. That's what we've seen, right? If you're close enough to walk or to get here by boat, um, that's a lot easier than if you actually have to get on an international flight. Although we do have 500,000 visa overstays a year. But, Tammy, I very much appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Um, Evelyn in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Evelyn. Hi, Buck. The reason I called, I was a lot of these conversations have already been said. I but I have no problem with someone coming here legally, and and doing what is right, learning the language, going towards our belief system as far as you know, uh, getting in with the community, not establishing their own rules and laws from their country that they came. 
And I have a coworker. She came from India with a special needs child and another another daughter. She spent so much money in lawyers and everything to get her through the uh, you know uh, immigration process to be a legal naturalized system. And she came with a master's in um, nuclear science. Now, she doesn't do that at work, but she's she's got a, a high-paying job, much better than mine. And so she is paying taxes and doing, um, you know, what, what an, an American citizen would do. She owns a home. She's, she's a wonderful person. And um, they're the kind of people that you don't mind coming into this country. And I went through the test with her to try to get her, you know, familiar with the answers for uh, to become a citizen. I don't think half or three quarters of American citizens born here could answer those. Oh, yeah, questions. absolutely. It's the citizenship test, a lot, a lot of American citizens would fail the citizenship test if they had to take it. But Evelyn, I hear yeah. you. And that's the thing. I mean, there's really no no uh, reasonable and, and moral person is opposed to an immigrant coming to the country just because they don't like immigrants. It's just about having an orderly process that's as fair as it can be and that benefits the American people to the greatest extent possible. Evelyn, thank you for calling in. Always good to talk to you. Got to roll in a quick break here, team. We're going to run out of time, but line's lit. We'll take more calls, discuss this a bit more, and uh, we'll roll into some other things. Later on in the show, we got Matt Walsh joining to talk about whether or not people should just think college is the thing to do when they graduate from high school. Here's a hint. He doesn't think so, and I agree with him. Uh, we'll also discuss uh, maybe some dating do's and don'ts later on in the show. It's been a, been a while since I've been on the single scene, but share some thoughts with you on that. Might get into the Iran recertification, although that's a pretty short news story, but it maybe will get me talking about a little online spat that occurred between a few former Obama administration national security officials and a New York Times reporter. Um, I know that's very vague, but if I get into it, it's pretty interesting. And I'm just really curious what you all think about this this Trump situation as well. We've got some spots open on the lines now, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We are rolling on Freestyle Friday, and we'll be right back. Good evening. The President of the United States is tired of so many black people coming to this country, tired of immigrants from Haiti and Africa being allowed in. Quote, why are we having all these people from whole countries come here, the president said today at the White House. Uh, this so um, anyway, that was Anderson Cooper again. And uh, there you have it. Um, there you have Anderson Cooper saying... Mean things about the president from earlier today. We got a lot of lines lit here. Uh, let's get into it. Daniel in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Daniel in Harrisonburg. Yeah. Hey, what's uh, up, Daniel? Hey, you may remember me from calling in a few weeks ago. I don't remember, but what's up? Uh, uh, I have an action movie quote for you. Okay. Without sacrifice, there can be no victory. I don't know what that one is, man. You got me. It's from Transformers. Oh. Optimus Prime says it 
multiple times in every movie. Oh, wow. Very good. Very good. Congrats. You got me on that one. I, I think I saw the first Transformers movie. I didn't see the other, like, two or three after that, though. Yeah, they've continued making some more, and there are two more new ones now. Cool. All right. Um, and then I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your history podcast. Oh, sure. So I really liked it, and I thought it was really good. And something you said, and then it, like, reignited a memory my dad told me when I was uh, listening to your show a few days ago about the uh, Muslim empires. And I remember that when I uh, showed my dad the uh, eras we'd be covering in history this year, because I'm 15 and in, am a sophomore. Oh, now I remember. You're the 15-year-old who called in. Okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. Go ahead. But he shared a link with me about, turns out my grandmother's ancestor was Americ Derinchen, the ban of Croatia in uh, 1493. Hmm. And he helped fight the Ottoman Empire at the Battle of Krabava Field. Very cool. I might have to get into that battle on the podcast. Daniel, thank yeah. you very much. I'm sorry, you have one more thing? Go ahead. Yeah, um... I also wanted to talk to you about oh. immigrants quick. And I remember back when Trump was getting elected, my dad's hairdresser, she is actually an immigrant from Mexico. And she came in the legal way, and she was cutting his hair one day, and she said that she was going to vote for Trump because she had to go through so much stuff to get here legally. And there are so many others just coming in here, not even bothering to do all that. Yeah, the people that go through it legally are very annoyed. At people are very annoyed that so many people get through illegally. Daniel, have a great weekend. Hope you'll download the uh, History Podcast coming out on Monday. Shields high, buddy. Thank you. Uh, all right, team, we're going to roll into hour two here. Coming up in just a second, uh, 844-900-2825 on the lines. Daniel got me on that action movie quote. Transformers is, in fact, an action movie. And we have to get into some other stuff here. I, you know, there's everything is all focused now on this crap hole comment uh, to the extent that there's really almost nothing else that's getting reported on out there which is a little, a little crazy but we'll get into some other stuff so uh, stay right there team I'll be back He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. You've got a uh, crap hole gate or whatever they're calling it now. I mean, it's it's the, the big scandal. The big scandal. The president says he did not say it. And others are saying he did say it. And that's what's... They have had on, on the lower third of CNN, I think nonstop for 24 hours now, a, a four-letter word, whole, and then countries. They, they cannot get enough of this. They love talking about this because, you know, the, the media has been a little upset for a while. And they're upset because their favorite subject matter is the lecturing of others on racism. They love this. Uh, wealthy, particularly wealthy white liberals on Various media channels really enjoy and and get get a particular uh, thrill out of talking about how everyone how everyone who disagrees with them on whatever subject matter is just so racist 
And they're not racist, of course. And they being the liberal media people. They're, they're not racist. And yet you have people like Nancy Pelosi out there. And she can say things like this, and we're all supposed to just say that this is fine. This is part of a bigger problem. Let me, let me work into this with you for a moment here. This is what Nancy Pelosi said about some of the members of Congress negotiating over DACA. Who's going to cut this deal, and, and then when will we know that you have one? Because you can't even agree on who's talking. Just stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. I would say of that McCarthy, the four—, yeah. four the five white guys, I call them, you know. Um, <laughs> I said, you going to open a hamburger stand next or what? Um, the, um, <laughs> the, that could have been done four months ago. The very idea that this week they're saying, oh, why don't we get four white guys and, and General Kelly to come and do this? This is part of a much larger phenomenon. One I'm sure many of you, all of you are familiar with, and that is that it is considered among Democrats and leftists, it is considered open season to mock and deride and put down whiteness. And, and white Democrats will do this as a means of showing that they, they are not they're not a part of the problem, right? That it's others. It's Republicans, conservatives, uh, traditional Christians uh, who are white. They're the problem. They are the, the issue with racism in this country. And I do think that there's, a, there's an overall sense that many people have that they are sick of hearing about—they're sick of a situation in which you can make any comment about white people, you can lecture white people on their white privilege, demean their struggles, demean their pain, demean their, uh, their triumph, say that it was all handed to them, say that it's all easier for them. Make fun of how white people in different ways culturally are inferior to other people. You know, white people aren't good at this or white people aren't good at that. White people ruined 30 things in 2017. That was a very popular article on BuzzFeed. And this has now become a, a punchline for stupid people, right? It's like, oh, you know, just a bunch of, oh, a bunch of white guys got together. Oh, there's, you know, these white guys, they don't know anything. Why is that? Why is it okay to limit anyone to their their race in terms of their the respect they're accorded their capabilities why is mocking white people all all okay it, it, and and i should note that for for white people who aren't leftist democrats and also just white people in general not allowed to make comments about anything else anyone else i mean you're not allowed to step outside of your you're allowed to talk about how white people are all inherently racist, had it easier than everybody else, white privilege, white splaining, all this stuff. And you can't you can't even speak about other races, ethnicities, or anything else without without risking firing, without risking your career, your reputation, your friends, your social standing, everything. I think everyone's kind of sick of it. Or at least a lot of people are sick of it. It's a double standard that has no philosophical, moral grounding to it right it's just it's just become an accepted double standard with the media and and in our politics and everyone's kind of tired of it you know nancy pelosi ah ha ha a bunch of white guys and it's particularly white males i'm talking about here too white males are now the 
the punching bag on college campuses for various professors, even entire classes devoted to this. I mean, the whole notion of white privilege is so is actually so offensive. As somebody who went to a high school where there were a lot of working class, what you call working class whites in my school, it was a scholarship school, and it was always remarkable to me that some of my friends who were uh, excellent students but came from very difficult background, I think the, the average income, and this is back in the 90s in my class, was basically the average household income. It was like 50-something thousand dollars a year. Which in New York City, by the way, wherever you're living in the country, New York is twice as expensive, unless you live in the Bay Area. It's basically twice as expensive as most other parts of the country in terms of quality of life and everything else. So 50 grand in New York in like the mid-1990s would be like living on 25 grand in the rest of the country. And I just remember that the, my fellow students among, among the white students and the Asian students, it was just kind of, you know, you have to take out a lot of loans and... Uh, you know, your, your your white privilege is only going to get you so far here, I guess. But for the non-white, non-Asian students in my class, including some of higher socioeconomic standing than the white students I'm talking about, uh, it was, you know, let's, please, we, we need more diversity at Harvard. Uh, let's bring you in as fast as we can. And what what do I tell my friend who's, you know, the got a single parent and is working two jobs and is, has better grades and better SATs than one of his classmates, and he can't get he can't even look at some of these schools, and he's going to be drowning in, in debt and loans for decades. But you know he has white privilege. I think eventually people get tired of that, right? and and we we might finally be at the point now. And in large part, I think it's because the Asian American community is also is also kind of like, hey, hold on a second, what the heck is this all about? And you got people that are here who are phenomenal students, do incredibly well, have had no leg up on anybody, no special advantage. You know, some of their parents, refugees from Vietnam, you know, came here from South Korea without a dime in their pockets, whatever the case may be. And they're told, yeah, but, you know, we we don't need you as much as we need some other immigrant minorities. Well, what, what is that based on? Right? The whole racial caste system that the media, academia, and the Democratic Party enforces on us is not just tiresome now, it's, it's wrong. It's unethical. And the notion that you should be able to make fun of whiteness and white people all the time because ha, 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 what, what message does that send? And that Nancy Pelosi, I mean, look, she wasn't even a particularly egregious example of it, but that we have these terms like white privilege and white splaining, and people say, check your privilege. You know, there was a, an essay that I, I remember reading a while ago and it was by because I read I just like <laughs> I just like smart people. I just like reading brilliant people. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to, anyone who is really knowledgeable, really thoughtful from any perspective. If I find it, I'll try to read it. And the guy's a socialist, actually. And he wrote a piece about how the left has just completely lost its mind. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he was basically saying when they will say that you can't really understand uh, you can't really understand suffering the same way as a white person as as you can as a non-white person. That that pain and suffering is different for for white people. And he went into a whole essay. His name is a uh, uh, Freddie DeBoer. A whole essay about how he lost one parent slowly and painfully to cancer. 
and then lost another parent slowly and, and uh, slowly and painfully to cancer. And people be like, well, but your suffering is not the same as as embattled minorities in this country or something. And he goes, no, I, I think I have an understanding. I, I think I actually know what what suffering is. Thank you very much. I think it's a human thing. It's not a race or gender or ethnicity thing. And it's a very evil. Uh, it's a very evil way to approach the suffering of of other human beings. To think, well, where do you fall in this? artificially constructed hierarchy that's changing all the time of you know who's got it who's got it worse who's who's rougher who's rougher off more difficult for them to deal with um and you know it's we're, we're reaching a point here where people are kind of sick of it you know i don't want to be lectured about white privilege i don't want to be told that you know opposition to affirmative action or opposition to immigrations based upon national origin quota that favor third world non-Christian countries, for example, or, you know, or, or, or non-white countries, specifically because they're non-white, that that's not something we're allowed to talk about. All right, I know. I've, I've been going on for some length here, and we've got, <laughs> which I very much appreciate, we've got every single line lit. Let me rack and stack some calls uh, when we come back, and uh, we will hear from all of you, team, 844-900-2825. Stay with me. Team Lines Lit, let's get into it. Uh, RB in Greensboro, North Carolina. Welcome to Freedom Hood. Thanks for taking my call, man. Uh, you Thanks for all you've done and continue to do. When people refer to the best and the brightest and the finest, they're referring to you and many of the people that helped you along the way. You're, it, it's uh, The way you analyze stuff, man, it's very fair and it adds credibility to your opinion. And I, I just like, I like listening to you and like hearing it. And I just got uh, through Bravo Company, Crate Club, and all that set up. So, Well, thank anyway. you, thank you, thank you, R.B. That, very kind words, and also uh, very much appreciate you supporting the wonderful sponsors of the show. That's what keeps the show on the air, so that means a lot. Yes, and sir. thank you for your kind words. It, it's an important part of it. This is, to me, is, is super simple. Trump is a businessman. He's not thinking immigration. He's thinking HR department. And you want to go get to the best schools and the best places to get the best people to do the job. And it pisses me off that people can't get in a room and have a conversation and with open ideas and saying things and nobody takes it out of the room. When you, when you start leaking stuff out of those rooms, when you're having those backroom conversations, then nobody, everybody will shut up. Nobody will, nobody will express himself well. This is a terrible thing that that idiot Democrat did by pulling this out and making a big deal out of it because it hurts the, 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 the sausage making that needs to go on and, and keeps people from being afraid to say something because it's going to get repeated and reported and all that kind of stuff. And that hurts the system. But uh, Trump's just hiring people, and he's looking for countries that have an education system, that are training their people, that can bring something to the table and help this country be greater. And the Democrats are looking for countries they have no system, and whenever they come over here, they're going to need the government's help. If they need the government's help, they're going to vote Democrat. And to me, it, 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 they, it, it's, de- it's detrimental to this country for, the, for us to bring people over here. They're, all they're going to do is lead money off the top, off the, off the welfare system. 
Yeah, I'm, uh, I've had on before different uh, experts who crunch the numbers. Mark Corey into the Center for Immigration Studies, for example, RB, and he just says, "Look, you got about double, double the uh, welfare and benefits usage of uh, of immigrants into the country, and I mean immigrants, not even illegal immigrants, that you do for native-born yeah. Americans. I mean, that's these are statistics. When when you're a country that's twenty trillion in debt, and you're worried about what your economic future is going to be, you got to take this stuff seriously." And it also goes to the heart of whether or not we even have something that can be called a country. If you don't control your borders, who comes and goes? If citizenship is not something to be valued, but something that is given away freely to benefit a, a ruling elite class, then, then America it will cease to be. It is just a matter of how quickly. They're, they're just wanting to be politically correct about who we bring over. Trump just cares about making America great. And I see that in that conversation. I think most of Americans do. Only the political elite see this as an opportunity to be jerks about this. But the rest of us, make, it makes perfect sense to all of us common people out here in the field. Why would we want people to come over here that can bring nothing to, to the table? Yeah, so no, it's, it's a straight I, – I like your HR I like your HR office analogy because that's the way we should run it. That Canada's immigration system is like a, ja, uh, a giant national HR office that's how they do it and the canadians are very nice and, and nice people not racist at all rb thank you for your thoughtful and kind call my friend shields high and have a great weekend uh let's see what we got here a lot of calls a lot of calls uh dave in sacramento we got a sacramento caller all right what's up dave hey buck shields high how are you shields high my friend i'm good good hey i'm calling to um uh, well, first of all, let me ask a personal question. You had um, you had a porterhouse at some point. When did you do that? I've had a, what do you mean? I've had a porterhouse steak before. I'm just look. I'm a ribeye okay. guy. All right. I you know I like what I like. I know. I know. So my my um, point I wanted to bring up today is to kind of step back from this crap hole, whatever you want to call it, different countries, uh, the thing that's going on right here, and take the larger perspective, which is this is just a war right now between left and right. And our president happens to be on the right, just like Bush before him. He's catching it every time in the media. I remember back when Bush was president and NPR would just hammer him daily. They would put up the, the troop numbers, the folks that got uh, killed in action over in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they hit him every single day. And the same thing when he uh, started to promote the idea or uh, promote the... um, The surge? The surge. Yeah. Exactly. And they called it the so-called surge is how they phrased it every single time. I said, what? This isn't a surge? And so it's just the, the insidious attack daily. And it's the same with Trump. He's just getting it every time they have an opportunity to do this, except now it's completely magnified, you know, with every single news media outlet other than Fox hammering on him. Yeah, isn't it amazing? I mean, you look at the, you look at the hysteria, Dave. I mean, the country's doing actually really well by all these different yeah. measures and metrics you can look at. Business is great. Economy's great. Employment's great. I mean, all this— and they're acting like we're at the end of days right now, although they don't believe in that biblical stuff on the left. But you know what I mean. I mean, they're acting like we are, you know, just just days away from some kind of Trump apocalypse. 
And I'm looking around. I'm like, you know, things are going pretty well, man. I mean, you know, what 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 world are they living in? But Dave, thank you for the call from Sacramento. Good to talk to you, my friend. Shields high. You know, I just one one little side here, and that is that uh, the experience of being in what you could call a crappy country is something that very much, I, I very very much affects your sense of how great America is. I mean, you know, it's not enough to be there for like an hour and, you know, then then fly out or something. I mean, you know, to really spend some time, spend a few weeks, maybe a few months in a country where there's uh, really no expectation of a government that functions without graft and theft and corruption, where you can't trust the police, where the police don't come even if you call them where if they do come, they're just as likely to shake you down or maybe even do you harm as any bad guys that are in your home, where there's raw sewage in the streets, where there aren't street lights, where you don't really have much in the way of cell phone signal and very little in the way of of Wi-Fi, where kids walk around sometimes up to their ankles in raw sewage and runoff, where indoor plumbing is a rarity, where electricity is a luxury there are where where people die of diseases that were essentially eradicated in the developed world have been cured for over a century there are places i've been in places like that there are places like that in this world and it is uh very perspective changing and perspective shaping to spend some time in it because when you come back to this country that we are in i don't care if you are in the roughest inner city or the poorest parts of the Rust Belt or whatever, this place is incredible. I mean, the, the, the cleanliness, this technology, the services, the legal system, the food, the medicine. I mean, America is amazing. And, and you really, I'm just putting it out there. I know many of you have spent time in places like this, but if you ever do find yourself in one, you'll see what I mean. If you're in a truly impoverished third world country and in the parts of it where no tourists would ever go changes the way you'll view this country forever uh so that's something to think about here uh, we'll be back with more calls and uh more to talk about in just a few Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. Do you think the coverage of Donald Trump has overcorrected? That is, do you think? Yes. Totally. I mean, we're over our skis and it's going to hurt us. Yes, we've overstepped. We're we're over our skis. Totally. We are too, not we, the entire mainstream media, we are reflexively anti-Trump. Um, on all things. Look at uh, Joe Scarborough there on the Katie Couric podcast. Because, yeah, I want to hear Katie Couric's opinions. They're, they're gonna, Katie Couric, very lucky person to have had the job she did when she did, because I've never heard her say anything interesting in my life. Uh, but I, I got to say, Scarborough at least is correct on this, right? Let's call it what it is saying that the media is reflexively and almost psychotically anti-Trump. I think Morning Joe is, as a show, not as bad as some others, but it's also pretty reflexively and and insanely anti-Trump. 
Yeah, but it's not going to get any better after this. I should note, though, I, I have not, I will say this, I have not seen or heard from, and I talk to a lot, of, I, a lot of people listen to the show or in constant contact with me via Facebook or email. I got a lot of friends in the media, you know, writers, journalists, reporters, all that. No one who's pro-Trump has seen this whole exchange over the crap hole countries and is like, this is it for me, I'm done. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. I, I mean, I'm just—it's anecdotal. I understand. I'm not giving you a scientific study here, but I haven't heard from anyone yet that they're like, you know what? This is too much. He's gone too far. I'm done with Trump over this. Meanwhile, if you're anti-Trump, this is now what we're we're in. It's like Dante's Inferno, and this is the ninth circle of hell. I mean, this is the worst of the worst of the worst. Hey, Greg in Oklahoma City. It's Ranger Greg, isn't it? Fuck, how's it going today? I'm good, brother. Thank you for calling in. Always good to talk to you. Absolutely, man. Um, I just wanted to talk about this little spat between uh, Brett Stevens of the New York Times and our um, esteemed friend Tommy Vitter, um, who was a formal National Security Council spokesman for the Obama administration, and this uh, theory that uh, Obama administration people had tipped off the Israeli or uh, excuse me the Iranians that the Israelis were going to uh, kill or assassinate, if you will, uh, General uh, Soleimani. And I find it interesting that many of the players in this um, have no experience in uh, foreign policy at all. I mean, Vitter is, he was just in college and had a BA and was just like a van driver, I guess, for um, Obama for America. And then all of a sudden, in a few few short years later, is a national security spokesman with no actual experience in national security oh yeah oh no he's first of all he's the guy who's like dude benghazi was like two or three years ago brah that was tommy vitor uh if you remember that that exchange from that was on national television i'll never forget this like brah it was like two years ago hang 10 uh so here's here's the exchange let me let me get into it a bit i've i've been reading about this i had a feeling this is what would happen with it So you had uh, Brett Stevens, who is a former Wall Street Journal, never Trump, current New York Times editorialist. He leans right, but he's 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 never Trump like Trump. If Trump wears a blue suit, Brett Stevens wants to wear a gray one. Right. It's it's like he he is never Trump in a way that's a a sickness. Uh, But he's now the New York Times and he raised an art, he he tweeted out an article from uh, Haaretz, which is an Israeli uh, left-wing newspaper. And in Haaretz, they cited, I believe it was a Kuwaiti-sourced claim, so take yeah. that for whatever it's worth, that the Obama administration had given a heads-up somehow to Qasem Soleimani, who is the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, which everybody listening is the is the kind of the crazy revolutionary uh, henchman of the Iranian regime. Think of it that way. You know, if if there were like, uh, it's like the, the equivalent of if they could create, you know, spec ops jihadis, that's what the IRGC is. And the head of it, Qasem Soleimani, has been involved in all kinds of bad stuff, including... Uh, with the IRGC's ties to what was going on with the Shia militias in Iraq. Greg, I know you served in Iraq. You were a sniper uh, some years ago. 
They were the guys that were helping get all the EFPs, the explosively formed penetrators, these cylindrical explosive devices that create a, it's almost like a shooting a stream of molten magma, in a sense, through the hulls of armored vehicles that maimed and killed a lot of U.S. servicemen. So Qasem Soleimani is, uh, is human refuse and the world would be a better place if we took him out. That the Obama administration allegedly may have given him a heads up would just be another data point that the Obama and his people were so desperate to get a deal with Iran that they would even possibly betray an intelligence source or betray a method of getting information to give Qasem Soleimani a heads up that some other country was going to try to take him out. Well, that obviously got people's attention. Now, as to Greg, your question about whether it's true or not. Vitor and uh, and Stevens went back and forth. Ben Rhodes also was pulled into this because Stevens is like, do you guys want to comment on this? And Vitor and Ben Rhodes, who is Obama's national security propagandist, uh, mocked Stevens for even raising it. And they had something of a back and forth there. And effectively, they're saying it's not true, that it never happened. I don't know, Greg. I mean, I wasn't in government at the time. And, you know, I, so I don't know if it's true or not. A Kuwaiti-sourced Israeli daily newspaper article, I mean, you know, maybe, maybe not, who knows? But I would say that I would find it at least theoretically believable that the Obama administration would do that. And what was even more interesting was that these two senior Obama administration officials thought it was completely beyond the pale that taking out the leader of the Quds Force, which is a terrorist organization— they think that's just insane, and they that was what was interesting in the exchange. So, you know, they're like, I mean, yeah, killing an Iranian leader, like, we would ever do that. Um, first of all, you know, if we could have taken Saddam out in the early days of one of those palaces with a big bomb, I'm sure I'm sure we would have been perfectly happy to do that. And second of all, he's a de- I mean, the IRGC is a de- designated terrorist organization, and Qasem Soleimani has American blood on his hands, you know? If I had the choice to drop a JDAM on on Qasem Soleimani, I know which I know which uh, answer I'd give, Greg. Yeah, I think this. I think it was interesting too that they both have defended uh, the idea that Israel shouldn't do that. Yeah, sorry, and Israel it, was the country that was that was you know according to this article going to take out Qasem Soleimani, and you know I, I would look at this and I'd say, well, if Israel is going to take out you know a senior Hamas operative, why wouldn't they want to right. take out a senior IRGC operative? Exactly. And I think Ben Rhodes' tweet in that whole exchange was kind of telling. He, he just said it was outrageous that you would even suggest it, not that, no, they didn't do it. Um, I, I think if somebody would accuse me of something that crazy, I would be like, no, I absolutely did not do that. Not No, that's an outrageous claim. How could you ever think of propagating that? Um, it's an interesting play of words that those, you know, the Ben Rhodes and Tommy Viewer type of people have a habit of doing um, is using words very selectively and carefully in, in choosing, you know, how they, what, what sort of message they want to display. Uh, and Tommy's uh, defense of General Somali, Soleimani is absolutely <laughs> crazy and insane because, like you said, he does have the blood of thousands of Americans. We know of at least 500 that were killed with those EFPs. Um, and I know personally a couple of friends that are missing limbs and arms uh, and legs because of these things. I mean, um, for people that don't know, an EFP, like you said, is molten steel and, and whatnot and copper usually. 
is shot at 22,000 feet per second. So it's going through these. Yeah, it's, it's a shape charge like specifically butter. meant to puncture U.S. Uh, armored vehicles and kill our guys. And the Iranians were handing those to Shia militias to kill our guys. And exactly. we should have been taking out as many of them as we could. And I, I know some people that were involved in uh, dealing with those EFP networks. God bless them for doing it. But it, it's something that we should not we should not forget anytime soon. And, you know, look, I wish I wish now we're getting into the Iraq stuff, Greg. You and I got to have a beer and talk about this sometime, although mine would have to be gluten free. But, you know, Muqtada should have taken out oh. that evil, we, that evil yeah. tub of vileness. Any chance that we should have, we should have helped. We could. If, it's an interesting theory that we could have. They, they would have pushed. It doesn't surprise me if it did happen because, again, the Obama administration just rolled over at any cost to get that Iranian deal deal done. So, I mean, it's something to think about. It's yeah, Qasem Soleimani, Muqtada uh, al-Sadr, these are people that, you know, if we could take off the battlefield, we should. Greg, thank you for your service. Thank you for your call, brother. Always, thanks, always, always good to hear from you. Uh, we're going to roll a new quick break here, team. When we come back... Talk about some uh, some other things. You know, one note: I I just saw this right before I went into the break. There was a, a commercial, or there was a story up about uh, a hazing death, I think, in Pennsylvania. And we you know, we're going to be talking about college later on in the show, and whether people should go to college. But I'm just for those of you who are listening who are, look, if you had a great time in your fraternity or sorority, God bless, and I'm glad you had a great time. But I I would advise anybody don't don't join those things. And and it's it's just not it's not a good idea. You know, at this stage, it's just so much binge drinking. You know, I know I sound like a grumpy old man here, but I, I had a all my friends did that stuff in college, and they asked me to do the various fraternities, and even I even was asked to join a secret society, and I didn't do any of that stuff. Yeah, no, no one is like smearing rotten eggs on Buck's face after making him drink, you know, out of a keg until he vomits on himself or something. That's never happening, and that stuff happens in a lot of fraternities. Just, and I don't even want to get into the sorority stuff. So just don't do it. Uh, that's that's my advice for all the young team puck out there. You're you're too cool, too worthwhile, and too interesting an individual to get sucked into some constrained social environment that's really just revolves around a lot of, of binge drinking. That's my opinion. I people can say I'm wrong, but if it were up to me, I would I would all on campus fraternities and sororities across the country, I'd probably say uh later. All right. Uh, that was just uh, out of nowhere, but I saw that, and that just—it's just so upsetting. This 19-year-old kid died at a fraternity. What, you know what are the what are the, what are the idiots around him doing? First, first priority always when you're with people. First priority is going to be everyone's okay. You're supposed to be socializing. No one's supposed to die. Good God! Anyway, I'm very anti-Greek. I'm very anti-Greek life. I'll just put it out there. So, all right, we'll be right back. Fake news better run and hide because the Buck Sexton Show is back. Rebecca in New Hampshire. What's going on, Rebecca? You. Hey. So I, I've spent uh, quite a bit of time in Haiti. And I just wanted to talk about um, the president's choice of words, if those were the, the actual words that he used. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he could have used a better choice of words however i can understand why he said what he said tell us why if that makes any sense well one of the things i've learned after spending a tremendous amount of time in haiti working to help people start small businesses a way of a, a hand up instead of a handout is that their education system though 
it's all run by nonprofits is is decent for what they're used to. When friends of mine from Haiti, even ones that have worked for the UN as translators, come to the United States on a green card, they basically feel as though they have to start all the way back in elementary school all over again because even with a degree from a university in Haiti, they can't get a job in the United States. So they inevitably end up with a very low-paying job and have to receive government assistance. And this is one of the reasons why I encourage my Haitian friends to not come to the United States, to stay in their own country, get the best education they can, and to help make their own country better, rather than coming here and working a minimum wage job and living off of the federal government. Yeah, well, brain drain from countries into the U.S., particularly poor countries that could really use as much of their own, uh, you know, indigenous entrepreneurship as possible is is a real issue. Absolutely. And if you look at, uh, I know one of the things being discussed lately is um, TPI and folks having to go back. And it was a couple months ago that the the Haitians on TPI, they were going to say, are going to have to start returning back. And I have Haitian friends here in the United States, and and they were interviewing a lot of Haitians on the radio who had been here since they were children, had gone out and gotten degrees, are working very, very good jobs, and they have to go back, and they're saying, it's not fair. Our country doesn't have jobs for us there, and our country, we can't make a living. And my response to that is, go back and improve the economy. You now have the skills to do that. Is there you a way? Know, is there a way, Rebecca, that you could your country out of poverty? Is, is there a way that you could just? Uh, I mean, I we you know I, I, we've got a we're going to be at the top of the hour here in a second, so I need, I need to move. But just real quick, um, if people want to understand how, how poor, I think people think of poverty. They think of like a rundown part of town. You know, a lot of people particularly <laughs> haven't left the country. Haiti is is poor actually in a in a global sense meaning i believe haiti is one of the 10 poorest in fact maybe one of the five poorest countries in the world per capita what is that how does that manifest itself what's it like when you're there well when i am there i actually live out in the provinces i don't live in port-au-prince i live out in the countryside uh in sometimes i've been there in a tent through hurricanes but generally it is in a cinder block or um stick built with mud uh, structure. Um, sometimes families as large as 10 people will live in two very small rooms. Uh, no running water. Electricity is through a solar panel. Um, your bathroom is a, you know, a long drop out back. You are bathing out of a bucket of water with a cup, and that is how you're surviving. And even inside Port-au-Prince, where I have stayed now and then, you might have electricity turned on three hours a day, and that is it. So we're talking bare bones. Refrigeration is highly unusual out in the countryside. Um, everything is cooked over charcoal um, that is made in the country, which is stripping the landscape, which leads to the mudslides and so on. But, you know, unless you're in very small pockets in the country, You've never even been inside a regular store. It's all outside marketplaces. So we're talking the poor of the poor, people who are in the United States, unless you're in very specific areas in the United States, will never 
understand what it's like to be in Haiti. Rebecca, very enlightening. Thank you very much for your call, and thank you for sharing all that with us. Uh, really interesting You're welcome. Stuff. Thank you. Have a great weekend in Shields High. Uh, Richard, Mississippi. Richard, what's up? Hey, Buck. I just wanted to call and tell you I listened to your Shields High broadcast twice, and I think it is outstanding, and I recommend it to anybody. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Will you listen to the and, new one on Monday? The Crusades, my man. Yeah, yeah. It, I enjoyed it, man, and I, I love I love the sound effect. I love everything about it. I heard you say you put it all together. Oh yeah, it was it, just me. <laughs> so it was it was excellent. I hope you do more. I'm doing more, man. Every Monday is the plan for now. So as long as you tell your friends and listen, my friend, we're going to keep them going. Thank you so much, I'm, Richard. I'm glad I can keep you company while you're while you're driving around down there, in Mississippi. Shields high to you, brother. Have a good have a good weekend. See, I'm so glad people are you know people are getting around with the Shields high. It's so nice. Such a nice call from Richard. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, all right, we got it. I'm going to talk to you. All right, we got the worst flu season in many years. So I'm going to whine to you about the flu. But also, there's a policy tie-in that I'm going to make. And I promise I won't talk about vaccines because some of you are like, don't do it! Because I've never... People get really upset about that. Matt Walsh is going to join and talk about college. And then I'm going to talk to you about first dates because we're going into a weekend. So why not? Stay right there. Welcome back to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. Our last hour together this week in the Freedom Hut. Brings a tear to my eye. The only thing that makes me happy is that uh, we'll be together uh, next week here in the Freedom Hut, of course. And I'm spending my weekend working on the Shields High History Podcast, which uh, hopefully everyone listening to this will at least try uh, to download one time, see if you like it. And then even if you don't, please keep downloading it. That would be great. Uh, But hopefully you'll love it because I've gotten some pretty positive feedback so far on it. And it is a labor of love. But I don't want to sound like a hypochondriac, somebody who is always worried about being sick. Although maybe I kind of am. I, it's also called being a New Yorker, I think. We tend to have high anxiety about uh, catching colds and flus because we're in the subway in these huge office buildings and we're surrounded by people on the street all the time. And you just you can see how the uh, virality of a virus is a very real thing. And sure enough, I mentioned to you earlier on in the week that uh, I'd gotten a flu shot only to find out that the flu shot for this year is something like 10% effective against the actual flu. And, and now we're already seeing reports that this is the, the worst flu in years, according to health officials. This, is, uh, this was linked up on uh, Drudge. I think it's an AP piece. The entire continental United States is experiencing widespread flu right now The first time in the 13 years of the current tracking system that has happened, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Officials said that this flu season is shaping up to be one of the worst. The rate of flu hospitalizations, the number of people hospitalized with flu per 100,000, nearly doubled last week compared with the previous week. Uh, So last week it was 22.7 per 100,000. This week the rate was 13. I'm sorry, the week before the rate was 13.7. Uh, this is not the kind of thing that I, well, I know no one wants to see anything like this. This is, uh, this is bad news. The influenza, a influenza, a virus H3N2 has caused the lion's share of the illness in most parts of the country this year. Now, why am I bringing this up? One, because I'm sharing my anxiety over getting the flu again this year after having gotten nailed with it last year, as I told you. And, And there's nothing really that teaches humility. I always say this to people. You know, you don't. No, nothing teaches you humility as fast as either having the flu or food poisoning. 
because all no matter how big and tough or cool and smooth or you know pretty and amazing whatever you think you are when that flu comes on and you're shaking under the covers and then sweating and shaking and sweating and your fever's like 102 or 103 yeah you realize we're all we're all fragile little butterflies in this world we're all we, we are snowflakes and that it is easy to melt us uh it's it's a reminder of our fragility uh, as as human beings but it also is for me a, a reminder that of all the things that i would like government to be better at or to to do maybe a little more of curing pandemic disease should be a lot higher on the list every time i see some big ticket fundraiser about climate change and they're like we could die in a hundred years because the water is going to rise and you know if you don't have like a canoe or a kayak or something you know it's just going to get higher and higher that water i want to yell and say i got an idea why don't you guys deal you guys being the federal government's centers for disease control why don't you deal with the possibility of pandemic influenza and, and try to get ahead of that problem? Because it is just a matter of time. When I, I mentioned before the uh, Spanish influenza, which they believe was started in the Midwestern United States in uh, what 1918 or, or so, or was 1916, 1918, I forget, right around there. And it killed tens of millions of people around the world. People die every year from the flu. Usually they're either very young or, or on the older side. But that in the 19-teens, you could have the rapid spread and progression of a virus like that that would kill so many people. Now add on to it, inst- not instantaneous, but 24-hour global travel. Instantaneous would be like Star Trek, where the guy just appears somewhere else. That would be cool, though. But... Global travel is now the norm, and so one person, and also just the concentration of human beings in particularly large cities. Look, this is the stuff, you know, we all have our things that get us uh, get us worried. For some people, it's that we're going to run into a, a credit crisis because of the debt, and our, mo- our money's going to be worthless, and we're going to be in a Mad Max dystopian future. For other people, it's an EMP attack, right? We've all got our stuff. Okay, North Korea puts an EMP up in the sky. It fries everything. All of a sudden, at least your problem is going to be the fact that you can't access your 401k statements online. You're not going to or your medical records, the doctor's office, power stations will be off, all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So EMP freaks some people out. For me, I think the big the big threat that doesn't get nearly enough attention is, is pandemic disease. And it's one of those areas where. The pr- people say, oh, Buck, the private sector. Yeah, private sector, obviously, huge role to play in curing diseases. As I found out recently that celiac disease, which is something that I'm very hopeful will be cured in the near future, that some of the cures they're looking at right now aren't really cures. They're just treatments you take while you also maintain a gluten-free diet. And I just want to be like, if I can't eat my fried coconut shrimp, w- what's the point, right? Why am I even taking this pill that's for celiac disease? But... If you had, say, a uh, a way to combat pandemic influenza that was truly effective, the humanitarian uh, the humanitarian side of the debate would win out. Meaning, you're not going to be able to make a huge profit off of it because if it's really needed, they're going to make it mass produced for everybody to save lives. Morally, it's correct, but there's a reason why the private sector doesn't get too excited about that. There's a reason why the private sector spends a lot more money, for example, trying to cure. Things like baldness or uh, 
dysfunction of certain male areas. A lot of money spent in those uh, in those parts of the problem uh, than on things like how to beat the flu or, or even the common cold. So I know, hypochondriac buck coming out here for a second, but just everybody wash your hands, and if you get sick, stay home, don't go to work, and if you're near somebody who's sick, don't worry, I give you a pass. Don't worry about being rude. Be like, I'm sorry, I got to I gotta create some distance here. A sneeze can go 20 feet, my friends, 20 feet, those little particles of saliva with those little viral things in it. So be safe out there. Important safety tips from Buck. All right, I'll be right back with Matt Walsh, going to talk to us about college. Should you go? Should you go? We'll be right back with that. All right, everybody, before we can start to think about uh, what's happening this weekend, we've got Matt Walsh with us on the line right now. He is a writer at The Daily Wire, also the author of the Matt Walsh blog, and his book, The Unholy Trinity, is out in bookstores all over the place. Great to have you back, Matt. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. So talk to me about this piece you wrote on on college, because I'm I'm somebody who went to a four-year liberal arts school, felt like it was at least two years too long. It was way too expensive. I'd say 80% of my peers didn't really do anything that would truthfully be called studying uh, at any length of time. And I I thought about going to grad school afterwards, and I was like, well, that's just crazy because that's now $200,000 in addition to it. What was your piece about? Tell me about it. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I've been a, uh, I wouldn't call, uh, some people call me anti-college. I don't know if I call myself anti-college, but I've, I'm anti the the current system by which we, we funnel, we just sort of automatically funnel every 18-year-old through the college education, you know, through the, through the university system without even thinking about it as if, as if it's an absolute requirement for everybody. So I'm anti that. And I was thinking about it uh, this week especially because it, it dawned on me or I was informed really that um, we uh, were about to reach the landmark in, in, uh, in our marriage where we're going to finish paying off my wife's college loans, which I didn't go to college, but, and she, you know, stayed home mom. So she's not quote using the degree. Um, but we've been paying it off our whole marriage and we're almost done. So that's, but the, the, the fact that we have been paying off a degree that isn't being in any sort of active way used is, uh, that just puts us in the same category. It's not a unique situation at all. Of course, this is the same situation that the majority of college graduates are in where they are paying off degrees that they haven't exactly used. And the number that I saw when I was researching the piece was, uh, I think it's only about 27% of college graduates are right now in a job related to their major, which is just a, it was just just such a small, it's it's a crazy, that's an incredible number, incredibly small. Um, So I I just really think maybe it's time for us to re, to to re reevaluate how we approach higher education and so that's what the piece was about yeah i i have to say that the student loan debt some people are calling it a bubble is at a trillion dollars right now that's a lot of money uh, by any account that there's a trillion dollars of loans outstanding for people to have gone to uh, undergraduate and graduate programs in this country and if you look at the expense of going to a college program today with the exception of community college a little different but any state or private college or university today versus what it what it was 30 years ago matt i mean i I don't know if you've had this experience My, my dad who was on scholarship all through high school scholarship through college but he would tell stories about 
helping at a at a boatyard over the summer to make money, and he would actually be able to pay off like a semester or two by working over the summer. You would have to work for about 30 years at a summer job right now to put a dent in a private four-year college or university. The costs are crazy. Yeah, and then you and then you so you look at, at how cost is skyrocketing, and then in many of these schools, which you alluded to, the quality of the education is declining. So there's just as the the gap right now between quality and cost is like it's like there's light years between them at a lot of these schools. And when I say quality of the education, I think uh, that's not always about the institution itself, although often it is. But I think it it, it can also be about just the fact that you that as as you talked about. You know, it's possible to go to one of these schools and get a degree and leave without without ever having really learned anything or done much studying. So the quality of education isn't always there, certainly not to justify the price and the increase in price, which is why, for me, it's – and, of course, there are some people that need to go to a college that legitimately need to go to a four-year institution or even beyond that. They want to get in the medical field or the legal field or they want to be an engineer, an architect, whatever. So we all understand, that, of course, you got to go to college for that and for some other fields as well. But my point is, this is what, if you're 18 years old and you're just getting out of high school and you're thinking about, do I want to go to college or not, you should be able to complete this sentence. The sentence is, I want to go to a four-year institution so that I can blank. And you should have something there. And if, if it's so that I can become a doctor, then great. Uh, but if, it's, if, you, if you don't really know what the, what, the, what the blank is supposed to be, then I think the smartest thing is to don't go to a college right now. Maybe down the line you end up going to one. But if you have no idea why you're going, then don't go. And I think the craziest thing, and this is what almost everyone does, and this is what they tell you to do, and this is what I was told to do when I was in high school with my guidance counselors, they, they'll say, well, if you don't know what you want to do, that's fine. Just go to college anyway and then figure it out. You'll figure it out when you're there. So now you're talking about paying. You're telling these 18-year-old kids with no money, no assets, no job, no resume, nothing to their name, you're telling them to pay, to, to, to accept a lifetime of crushing debt on the theory, on the hope that while that, that this thing that they're purchasing down the line will come in handy, and then while they after they after they're, they're supposed to purchase it, and then after they purchase it, figure out what they're going to do with it. In in what other scenario would we ever recommend that someone make such a financial commitment like that? I think it's, I think it's crazy, and there's no reason to do it if you if you leave high school, get a job somewhere, go experience life, do some things. And then you decide that, hey, I want to be a doctor. Well, you can go to school then. And so you're two years behind what your, what your, what your peers in high school are doing. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Um, at least then you've cut out the risk of going and making this financial commitment which in the end will not do anything for you. And that's a, it's a pretty big risk now. We're speaking to Matt Walsh of the Matt Walsh blog. He's a writer at the Daily or at dailywire.com. And his piece up there on this subject is, don't believe the lie, kids. You don't need to go to college, and you probably shouldn't. You know, Matt, I, I, if I'm being honest about myself, uh, I and, and I try to advise other people about this, if I had spent a year or two either working or serving, whether that's, uh, serving your country in the military, serving as uh, you know, a missionary abroad. I mean, you know, dep- or just a job where you have to show up, you get paid an amount of money, and then you start to see what that's like. I would have approached college a little differently. It took me about two years before I decided, wait a second, this is a finite, and I have the opportunity to learn a lot and do a lot here. And I was honestly taking it more seriously than a vast majority of my peers. I think that that's good advice for people. And I, I remember there was a story about a, a guy a couple of years below me 
who was one of these kids who just showed up and just all he was doing was drinking, Matt, right? Which is not unusual. There are a lot of people that go to these colleges and it's just drinking and partying and that's what they think college is. And he actually failed out and his dad made him uh, work as a toll collector, completely honorable job, but you know, not necessarily the most stimulating of, of professions, as a toll booth collector in New Jersey for a year before he would let him go back to school and help him pay for it. And apparently the kid came back a changed human being when it came to schoolwork. Yeah, I think that's a great. I, I I wish that every, uh, if only every you know, eighteen, nineteen year old had a, had a, a parent like that, a dad like that. But I I think that, uh, you know, we talk about the college experience, and that's one of the arguments I hear in favor of just sending the kids to college no matter what is, well, it's for the, it's for the experience. It's a great experience. I think the college experience is one of the worst things about college right now. In in most cases, um, and it's and I think for a lot of kids, it's not going to be a formative experience that that teaches them about life and helps them grow. I, I think for some it can, but I think they're in the minority. More likely is, yeah, someone goes and they're a toll booth collector or they work a low-wage job or they do whatever. You know, they, As long as they're working and paying and taking care of themselves, I'm a big advocate for that. Um, when you're 18 years old, just get out there in the world and learn to take care of yourself a little bit. That, that's how you grow and learn about yourself and learn what your talents are and your skills are, your passions are, what your vocation is. Because the, the vast majority of 18-year-old kids that come out of high school and they have no idea about that. I didn't know about it either when I, when I graduated high school. I didn't know what I was good at or what I was supposed to be doing. Because, unfortunately, the public school education system doesn't really, for most kids, doesn't really help you sort that out. It doesn't help you discover who you are because it's all about just, just shuffling the kids along this conveyor belt-like system. Uh, so I think they need to get out there in the world and, 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 uh, and figure it out. And then the great thing is that if they decide they need to go to college, they're going to go in as a, not only as a, a more mature person, but um, they'll have a little bit of experience under their belt. They'll have a little bit of a resume already, and they'll have a little bit of money, too, that they can go into college with, so they're not going in broke. I just think this is obviously the, the best way to approach it. And I think, I think what happens is that you have some parents who do not want their kids to do that because, and I know it's not the case for all of them, but there are some parents who, even though this is clearly the best approach, there are some parents who don't want that because they're deathly afraid that their kid will go out into the world and then discover that they don't want to go to college at all, and now the parent is going to be embarrassed that they have a kid that didn't go to college. And so for some parents, it's kind of a vanity thing where they want their kid in college, not so much for the kid but for themselves. I think that's and, a very uh, profound so insight, by the way, because, college, no, Matt, Matt, there's a, a lot of social pressure on parents to make sure, and you, you'll even hear the stories, right? The first in my family to go to college, that's a great, that's all well and good, but it, it's something that the, the parents feel very good about, and, you know, maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not to go to college. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and look, we all have desires and things for our kids, and we all want our kids to be educated, and a lot of parents really want that formal education, something really important to them, and I'm not downplaying that at all. I think it's a, it's a fine goal for your kid, but um, at the end of the day, whether they're 18 years old or an adult, and this has to be what's best for them and what they want to do to some extent. And so there is that there's, you know, the social pressure that, that kids feel in high school, like I said, that I experienced where it's like, they don't treat at least the high school I went to. And I think this is pretty common. They, 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 they basically tell you, you're going to college. Second option is the military. That that's okay. Maybe outside of that, it's like, there's no other option. Yeah. You're like a space alien. Like, like the guidance counselor doesn't even want to see you. <laughs> yeah. The same thing at my school, Matt Walsh, everybody check out his latest at dailywire.com. He's also got a piece. We didn't have time to get to today, but it's 
the folks who wear vagina hats and call us teabaggers are offended by Trump's vulgarity. Uh, excellent stuff there. Go check it out at DailyWire.com. Matt, have a great weekend, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Buck. Appreciate it. Team, we're going to roll into a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you about keeping one's dignity on a date. A, a little bit of free Freedom Hunt advice on a Friday uh, based on a story out of Dallas that I saw. We will talk about that. Uh, any last-minute calls, let me know. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. I'll be back with you in just a few minutes. You know, it's funny. I was talking to... Uh, colleague of mine today and we were discussing how sometimes a a business negotiation you know or a a, a first business meeting he was telling me a story and I said you know it, it kind of sounds like a first date you know you want to be clear about what you want but not too eager and you want to be interested but not too interested and you know you want to allow the other person to meet you halfway and there's sort of a similarity between the rhythm of being on a first date and the rhythm of a business negotiation where you're not sure the deal is going to get done or not or you're not sure you're going to get what you want and it reminded me of how as somebody here in New York City, we we get married a lot later than folks in the rest of the country. Uh, I, I know. I'm working on it, everybody. Don't worry. It's it's happening. Uh, but we get married, I think, an average, on average, like 28 or 29 here is, is pretty standard for New York City. And so that means that most folks have gone on a lot of a lot of first dates. And I've maybe one day I'll sit around on a, on a Friday evening with some of you and tell you my funniest or perhaps most embarrassing or well I guess it would be both first date stories mine are not amazing I mean I do remember once many years ago being on a date with a woman who told me on the first date that she writes a blog about all of the dates that she goes on and that was the only and I I was respectful about it and I wasn't brusque or, or rude or anything but that was the only date that I did not see through to the end I was like I'm this is not going to work for me. <laughs> this whole, this, everything I say to you may end up on a blog. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not signing on for that. So we, we were just having coffee and I finished my coffee and went on my way. Uh, but you, know, you also have that, that circumstance of, you know, if it doesn't go your way, things don't turn out the way you like. You always have to remember that dignity is the one thing that nobody can take from you but yourself. You know, it doesn't matter what happens. Someone else can be mean. They can be demeaning. They can be rude. They can be, you know, crazy, whatever. But if you, you choose whether or not on a date to maintain your dignity, which is also one of the reasons why as much as, and I'm going to admit now that I watch, used to watch a Bravo show called The Millionaire Matchmaker. I know, I know, make fun of me. I deserve it. I deserve it. Lay it on. You can send me the Facebook messages right now. You're like, Buck, your man card has been revoked. But, you know, sometimes it was entertaining. But there was this woman on it, uh, Patty, who was the host, and she would always say, only two drinks allowed, okay? And and that was the limit for women who were at this mixer with uh, men, or, or, or vice versa for men, too. Two drinks, that's it. It is a very good rule for a first date because 
the one time when you might find yourself not acting with the most, or, or the likeliest time for you to not act with the most dignity, I don't know, a, probably a pretty small percentage of those listening to this show right now are single, but I don't know, maybe it's about 20 or 30% of you. And, but the one thing is, if you get really drunk, dignity becomes a little tougher to hold on to if things don't go your way, meaning, you, you know, you feel like this has been a bad date and, you know, you, you're, you want to, uh, you wish it had gone better. And then you have to make that decision about, OK, I'm just going to go home and shake hands and be very respectful and dignified and not, you know, throw a tantrum, not, uh, you know, say anything snide on, the, you know, not just try to, you know, to, to take a few pot shots on your way out, you know, from the date. You know, that's that's you have a few drinks. and It's more likely to happen. Well, we have quite a good example of what allegedly uh, can happen if you have a little too much to drink and you don't decide to hang on to, uh, to dignity for very long. A woman back in December uh, was on a date in Dallas and she, she was apparently uh, allegedly very intoxicated and in, uh, the guy she was on the date with brought her home and she, quote, shattered two $20,000 sculptures and poured wine on paintings, including two Andy Warhol works, each valued at $500,000. She, she allegedly did $300,000 of damage to this guy's artwork on a first date because she was drunk. And now she faces really, you know, this actually gets serious because she faces really serious criminal charges because of it. And it's just a reminder, you know, dignity is one of those things where you are the only person who can safeguard it. But the great thing is no one can take it from you. You have to let it go. And if a date's going badly and you're a little too lit up, that's when, uh, you know, that's when all of a sudden as a guy you say, you know, you know, I just want to start talking about my exes. You know, my ex-girlfriend left me because no, no, no. Hold on to your dignity. This date didn't go well. Don't you, you know, or I'm just wondering, you know, why don't, why don't you, uh, why don't you like me more? I mean, you know, I don't think you want to go out again, you know. No, 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 no. Hold on to that dignity. And for the ladies out there, you don't want to be in a position where you've had like seven glasses of Chardonnay and you're like, oh, this is an Andy Warhol painting. Whoopsie. Drug a little bit of wine on it. Too bad. Stinks for you, Mr. Not Fun on the Date Man. You, you don't want that either. That's bad, ladies. That's bad. So you don't want to be the guy who's, why don't you like me more? And you don't want to be the girl who is falling over in her heels. I have to say, I've seen that. Like, I'm sure it's hard to work in those, uh, to walk in those heels. I've never tried before. Um, but, you know, dignity, very important, very important for all. Uh, and I just, this woman who allegedly did $300,000 of damage to artwork on a first date is a, is a reminder. Two drinks max, if you want to drink anything at all, by the way, which is a whole separate discussion. And, uh, yeah, try to, we've all got to keep it together. We've all been there where we want to just tell somebody what we really think about them after that first date or whatever. But you know what? Our mothers and fathers, our, our grandpappies and grandmammies, our, our families raise gentlemen and gentle ladies. And so we don't do that. Got to keep that dignity. All right. Uh, we're going to get in some uh, team buck roll call here in just a sec. Stay with me. Team, our Freestyle Friday is going to be uh, coming to a close here in just a few minutes. It's been a great week here on the radio, and I very much appreciate all of you joining me 
And also thank you for listening to, downloading, and hopefully sharing the Shields High podcast. New episode coming out on Monday, The First Crusade. That's right. It's a bit of payback, if you will, for the conquest of the Byzantine Empire and the Battle of Tour, which the Christian side won. But as you know, it was close fought and it was in Christianity's backyard, so to speak. Coming up on Monday, we'll talk about the crusade to take back Jerusalem and what the ramifications of that were going forward for the cross versus crescent wars. So we'll get into all that. It's on iTunes. If you listen to this show live on radio, please go check out iTunes and just type Shields High in search, and then you can click subscribe, and you'll get each episode coming out every Monday at 3 p.m. On the iHeart app, also, you can follow on the iHeart app. So with that, oh, and by the way, I hope you're subscribing to this show, too, my, my main show, my radio show, The Buck Sexton Show. Let's get into some Team Buck roll call. And so let's see what all of you have to say. Again, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to send a message. Buck, you may want to include some punctuation in that description of the Shields High podcast on iHeartRadio. There is currently nothing separating the subtitle from the first sentence of the description. So it reads like this, quote, the battles that saved Western civilization from nationally syndicated radio host Buck Sexton. <laughs> uh, yeah, they had to save Western civilization from me. Good point. At first, I did a double take, and then I just laughed and wondered why you lost. Yeah, I should have won that fight. Way to keep it AD and not CE. Shields high, Lieutenant Doug. Well, thank you very much, Lieutenant Doug, and uh, we will get that addressed right away. We got Taylor here writing in, I've officially run out of close friends and family to talk about the Buck Sexton show in Shields High. I'm now that weird guy walking up to strangers. Hey, check out this Buck Sexton fella. I feel I need to make a more official handout, but my paper tearouts work for now. Dude, Taylor, you're the man. I am I am humbled and honored and thank you for being a Team Buck superstar and trying to spread the word. It's the reason why the show is growing. It's the reason why people are like, wow, this history podcast, it's it's really working. People want to hear this stuff. They want they want storytelling of our history. It's, it's working. So please keep, keep going, keep listening, keep spreading the word. All right, we have next one, Pablo, who writes in, Hey, this is uh, a few weeks after the Buck Speaks question from Mike about a jacket for Korea. Coming from someone in Korea, a leather jacket isn't going to get it done. It is absolutely freezing right now, and the only thing getting me through is a heavy down jacket I got from Pearl Harbor because I couldn't find one in Korea. Has the Sherpa-lined hood and has been a lifesaver. If only that global warming would start kicking in, shields high. Well, shields high to you, Pablo, and thank you for the update on uh, cold weather couture, courtesy of Korea. Now we got a note from Mary. I listen to your show every night. Last night I heard you talk about French women being against the women of America bringing dirt against men. I don't understand how they can bring up things from 30 years ago. I'm angry that women climb over men this way. Uh, well, Mary, you know, I, I've been worried all along about false accusations. Look, guilty parties should be punished. Sexual harassment's illegal and sexual assault is a crime. But the innocent until proven guilty isn't just a legal standard. It should also be something of a guiding concept for 
uh, society at large, right? It shouldn't just be an accusation, you know, verdict first, trial later. That's not the way it's supposed to be. All right. And now we got one from Paul, representing Team Buck here with the following. Any chance you could do a debate with a liberal on your show, border wall, Russia collusion, or any other topic that would entertain us, would be nice to hear how you compose yourself and separate from uh, how stupid they sound and are. Uh, Thanks for your book list that you answered on air. Bought them all. Wishing you and your team a great start to your year, Paul. Well, uh, Paul, you know, I would be happy to have a liberal on to discuss on this show any topic that would be of interest to this audience. I just have a hesitation because radio, the moment that radio becomes too contentious, it's just a shouting match with nothing else. It's not even like on TV where what they call crosstalk is frustrating, but at least you can see something. On radio, it just turns into a garbled mess. And really, the, the host always has the, the upper hand, which is why some of these radio shows really love it when someone calls in so they can go, yeah, shut up, and they hang up on the guy or whatever because you get to control the pace and the duration of the exchange which is also why, for example, at CNN or some of the left-wing media, uh, left-wing news outlets, I would say conservatives are at a huge disadvantage. The deck is literally, well, not literally, but the deck is actually stacked against them. So I would love to, but it would need to be a very particular kind of liberal, and I would need to trust that the liberal would want to exchange ideas and not get snide or nasty, because I I really make a point on this show to uh, avoid uh, being... To avoid being a jerk, I'm always disappointed. There are some other hosts out there who are not nice, and they're, they're unkind to callers without reason. Not many. I'm just There are a few that come to mind, or they're just particularly nasty. They like to make fun of people's appearances a lot, things like that. I just never understand that. I think that's really that's not what this should be about. And, you know, calling people stupid and things like that. I try to avoid that. I'm not perfect, uh, but I try to avoid all that unnecessary negativity as much as possible. So debates, I'm open to it, but it's it's tough on radio, I'll be honest with you. And I will just tell you that I am somebody who has come up against this already in my career. Uh, They won't have me on the Bill Maher show because I'm uh, too adept a debater. And there are concerns about how the rest of the panel will be able to handle me. And that's been true in other places, too. They never had me on Anderson Cooper's show on CNN, would never have me on Jake Tapper's show on CNN. They could only let me do Don Lemon's show, which just turns into a food fight and yelling and nastiness. And it's a joke, as you've seen in the last couple of days, because they, they don't want to put a prize fighter in the ring with little old me and have that prize fighter get knocked out. So that's always been a limitation for me because I'll debate anybody. I mean, the last time they had me on MSNBC was six years ago, maybe six, yeah, six years ago, very early in my career. And it's because while I was still getting used to media on the merits, I smoked the person that I was supposed to debate who was one of their prized on air uh, pundits. So it's, it's, it's never as easy and straightforward as it seems to, to get people to have a real robust conversation. All right. And now, as you can see, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, it's, it's a frustration of mine in two ways. I'd like to have more debates with uh, honest and, and uh, reasonable intellectuals of the left. And also, I think it's very indicative of how the left plays the game that, I mean, I know for a fact that I've been uh, barred from some invitations in media or banned, if you will, from some shows 
just because I'm, I don't know what else to say. I'm too smart for the panel or the host. That's just the truth. I know the producers that work on these different shows and in a debate setting, they are worried about me and they should be because they would get buck slapped. All right. Now we have Susan writing in, uh, Hey Buck, uh, I'm not OSS original Saturday squad, but I've been listening to you for over a year and thanks to you, I watch less and less TV. I listen to you instead. I also happen to be Hungarian, and last night I was very glad to hear one of your callers mention the Battle of Nandorfehervar. I'm not going to lie, I have no idea how to pronounce that. Uh, though he said the name of the Hungarian city, Sekesfehervar. That, <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm much better with at least bumbling through German or even Arabic uh, names than I am with, with Hungarian. This is way beyond me. That is also a very important city in our history. It used to be the capital of the Hungarian kingdom in the early centuries. I send you some info on this battle and also recommend the story of the siege of Eger. Thank you for your hard work. Have a great weekend. Shields high. Well, Susan, it's a great honor that you listen to this show uh, over watching TV. I thank you very much for that. And also, thank you for sending me this information. I am familiar, uh, at least in broad strokes, with the fact that the Eastern European states were the ones during the period of the High Ottoman Empire, the most powerful caliphate in history, they were on the front lines. They were the ones that were holding the line for Western civilization, Christianity, and Christendom against the conquest of jihad. And that's going to be a major feature of the Shields High series when I get to it. We're going to work through the Crusades first because, or at least the first crusade, and then perhaps do a little bit more beyond that, because there's so much there, but I can't skip from the 8th century to the 14th or 15th century without putting some context in in the middle there, and and you can't skip the crusades if you're talking about cross versus crescent conflict, but we will get into some of those major Eastern European battles, and I will look into the siege of Eger and some of these other ones that you have brought to my attention. All right, with that, I am going to close up shop here in the hut. Uh, By the way, check out BuckSexton.com. If you ever want to listen to the show there, you can. We've got the live stream up there. We also have some T-shirts there if you want to grab some Team Buck gear. Miss Molly's going away for a few days to do some work on the road, so I'm going to be solo this weekend, just me and my history books. But send me messages, and I'm excited to join you every day next week. No matter what comes our way, friends, no matter how rainy and bleak the weekend in New York City may be, I will have my shield high.